Hi, I'm Eric Humphrey, and this is Creatives Talk. This podcast was birthed from a simple idea of giving back to the creative community. Every week I have the opportunity to speak with some of the most creative, driven, and inspiring individuals I've had the chance to meet. I hope their stories inspire you to live a more creative life. Really excited about today that I'm being interviewed by my amazing wife, Courtney, for Creatives Talk. I wouldn't want to be interviewed by anybody else. I'm glad we're here. Oh, thanks, babe. So I'm super excited to be interviewing you. And my first question, I think, is really just wanting to understand what inspired you to create Creative Talk. What was your vision? Honestly, it was my way of trying to to highlight people in the creative field, but also to kind of give a guide. I get so many questions all the time from uh, photographers asking how to get into the industry, what it takes, what they should do. And I'm like, I've been able to meet so many amazing art directors, producers, photographers, and I'm like, why don't I create a podcast that people can listen to and learn from? Because this is how I learn, like from listening to others. Yeah, yeah. I think it is interesting, the people that you've already interviewed in the past, their stories, their experiences, all are like really, really engaging. How do you decide who to interview? I'm lucky because I got some dope people that I've worked (laughs) with. (laughs) I've worked with some dope people in front of the camera, but even doper creators behind the camera. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to build relationships with these people over, gosh, how many years I've been doing this? Seven years now. Seven years. Seven years I've been shooting. And I just was like, man, I have access to all these amazing people. Why don't I interview them? And Mm -hmm. they've all achieved crazy levels of success in their career. I'm like, selfishly, when I interview them, I get inspired. I'm like, man, I learned this about this and learned this thing. Right. I'm like, this is amazing. Right. (laughs) So do people reach out to you and talk to you about the podcast or what's the feedback been that you've been receiving? I mean, honestly, I started the podcast a year ago Mm -hmm. and I got overwhelmed. I had this lofty ambition. I was going to do one episode a week and I was going to knock out 53 episodes in a year. And after... Six episodes. Wait a minute. It's 52 weeks in a year, baby. Yeah, it was a leap year, I think, last year. All right. (laughs) And after, what was it, six episodes? I was like, wait, this is a lot. This is too much. (laughs) Because I was, I had to, I mean, I'm not a journalist and I'm not a podcaster. I didn't even know how to record it. Like, my first episode was with Callie and it took me probably two and a half hours to figure out how to set up the mics to do the recording. (laughs) (laughs) Like real talk. It was a struggle. And I was like, I'm so fortunate it was Callie because she was patient with me. She didn't really have much to do with that day. But I was like, this is tough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And so learning how to use, I use GarageBand, learning how to use GarageBand to record I used to have one mic. Now I have two mics, figuring that piece out. Mm -hmm. So everybody has their own vocal core. And then learning to edit. Like, I used to edit these things, and that would just be, it was just a lot. It was, like, really overwhelming. I was like, Mm -hmm. I can't do this anymore. And I took a break. Right. Almost a year. (laughs) And I came back, and I was like, all right, I'm going to do this every other week. And I had resources now. So I've got someone that does the edit for me. I have someone... 
that helps out with creating like the promo pieces. So mm-hmm. it becomes a lot easier. And then I'm not putting the pressure on myself to put an episode out every week. Got it. So we should expect to hear from you every other week. Is that what I'm hearing? That is the goal. <laughs> okay, that's the goal. That's the goal. Okay, perfect. So thanks for talking about a podcast. I want to ask questions that I feel like I already know I better know since I married you, but <laughs> I'm sure everyone else wants to know. So just tell us a little bit about Eric Umphrey. Who is Eric Humphrey? So Eric Humphrey is this kid from Baltimore. I spent 17 years there, or 18 years actually. Grew up in West Baltimore. I know everybody, when you think of Baltimore, you think of The Wire. Right. <laughs> Which I, it's kind of, it, being from Baltimore, you kind of hate hearing that because we're always associated with so much negativity. Mm-hmm. But then there's still, you know, a lot of reality in that too. So I got a brother who's 11 months older than me. And we were raised from 13 and 14 years old by our grandmother, who now is still alive at 93, which is amazing. (laughs) I try to go see her once a month. But I'm just this kid that grew up really driven, got exposed to a lot. Mm -hmm. My mom always had me involved in a million different things. My dad was like the adventure side of the family, so... He always had us doing the exciting, exhilarating things. Yeah. And it's kind of all those little pieces of people that poured into me have kind of shaped me into who I am today. Well, I appreciate those people. (laughs) (laughs) So talk a little bit about your childhood. You said your grandmother raised you, but your mom and dad helped shape you. What are some of the things that happened in your childhood that were a little bit of a struggle that people may not know about today? A little bit of a struggle? A uh, lot of bit of a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the, the biggest hurdles or tragedies, really, that happened in my childhood, I lost both of my parents. My my mom died from sarcoidosis when I was 11, and then my dad died when I was 13 from a gunshot. So after that, and like growing up, my family was kind of like, the Huxtables or whatever. Like my mom was a teacher, my dad was a successful corporate guy, and we had like a, a great life. I thought like mm-hmm. vacations every summer, got whatever we wanted. Then it you know it changed a lot after my parents passed. Me and my brother, we went from having our own bedrooms to moving to my grandmother's home, which was a lot smaller. And sharing like a small bedroom mm-hmm. where it was it was crazy, and we're now we're like in the midst of teenagers, high school. Yeah. The good thing is like my grandmother was incredibly strong, and was able to instill in us and provide for us, you know, so many values, and just you know she loved us and she was hard on us, but we needed it at that time. So yeah. So your grandmother started raising you and Marcel at 13 and 14, right? Yes. Okay. So I think several people deal with tragedy and deal with things that happen in life and they don't get through them. What do you think the things were that happened to you that allowed you to stay inspired, to stay creative, to help shape the man that you are today right now? I mean, again, I think a lot of it goes back to, I mean, the creativity really goes back to my mom. And from, I don't know, as far back as I can remember, 
she just always had us involved in extracurricular things. Mm-hmm. I played the cello. My brother played the violin when we were kids. She put me in photography classes when I was a kid. We used to go to this. It was a science center downtown. We would go to science camp in the summer. We would go to camp at the zoo in the summer. It's like we literally would get out of school, and a lot of kids in our neighborhood, like their summers were spent at home, like hanging out in the street. Mm-hmm. Our summers were as soon as school's out, we're in camp every single day doing something. So wait, did you go to a photography camp? No, it wasn't a camp. It was like this class. And that was during the school year, from what I remember. Mm-hmm. On the weekends, we were at class at City College learning photography. I was learning photography and my brother was doing some something else. So it was just always being involved in something that was stimulating our mind. Definitely has carried over to my adulthood. And my passion for photography was birthed out of those photography classes because my mom bought me my first professional camera. Mm -hmm. I used to carry that thing around all the time and shoot all the time with my little camera bag. So wait, what age were you introduced to that camera? I don't remember exactly. It had to be, you know, like six, seven. I I don't. I was young because my mom passed when I was 11. And I know when she passed, I stopped. Mm -hmm. But I was involved in it for several years before she passed. And and, I mean, she even got, she got sick. So she got sick when I was nine. So I probably got involved in photography at like six or seven, which in my mind seems like super young because we got a three-year-old. And I'm like, in three years, he can be taking real pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Like I had to be that young. And I got a picture of me when I, I might be four or five and I've got this Polaroid camera that I I remember this day really well, but it's a picture of me with this Polaroid camera. We had just gone to Niagara Falls and I took pictures and I'm like, man, looking at it now, it's like, this has probably always been where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. It just took me a while to realize that. (laughs) So that was going to be my next question. I think some people are born with a gift and they know, you know, almost instantaneously that that is what their passion and their gift is in this life. Do you feel like that gift was something that you were born with, or do you feel like it was something that you kind of helped to create as you got older? So I definitely don't think I was born with a gift. (laughs) (laughs) At least my gift was not that I was going to be this amazing photographer or whatever. Because I remember so well when I got back into it as an adult, I thought I could take good pictures. Like I've always believed that my pictures were great, Mm -hmm. but then I can look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. (laughs) And so no one could tell me nothing back when I first started taking pictures that my pictures weren't. I wasn't Picasso of photography. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so when I got into photography, someone once told me, like, you need to shoot all the time. Like, any free time you got, you need to be shooting. So I took that to heart, and I started shooting all the time. And I shot a bunch of my friends. And I shot this couple that was getting engaged. And I was like, I'll shoot your engagement pictures for free. Mm-hmm. And I look back at those pictures, and I almost cringe at how bad they are. <laughs> And we shot at Piedmont Park in Atlanta, and it was just the lighting was bad, the composition was bad, with my direction to them was bad. Like everything that you could think about with these pictures is bad. And I 
What? I took them pictures. I was posting them everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't tell me that these were the best pictures ever. I think I know the couple that you're talking well, I'm about, too. I'm talk. not going to say their names. Man, because I, I feel I bad. Like, I feel like I should reach out to them and reshoot it. <laughs> but it was just not a good look. So, no, I don't think I had this innate talent in photography. I think if I have a talent, my talent is like, I'm going to work hard. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think that's the talent because the work ethic really just came from seeing people in my life always work really hard. And that let me know, like, I got no choice but to work hard. Got it. Got it. Got it. That work ethic. That's yes. what you're all about. Definitely. Okay. So let's uh, backtrack a little bit because I think people really want to understand more about your story. They may have heard little nuggets here and there, but kind of want them to really understand who you are, how you got to where you are today. Is that okay? That's fine. Okay, me. cool. So you're a little guy from Baltimore walking around with this camera. You take a break from it for a little bit after you dealt with your tragedy, but then you decided to pick it up a little bit later, right? Yeah. So did you go to school to study photography? Is that when that inspiration came back? What did your collegiate years look like? I went to school to study computer science because okay. that's what my grandmother told me to do. Mm-hmm. That was short-lived. And then I, I shifted into business. I studied finance. In college, you know, it was great. I studied finance. I pledged Omega Sci-Fi. I had to tell my life at Clark. And that's where we first met, actually. You better know it. <laughs> so, I don't know. College, to me, like, the idea of being a photographer was not even in the realm of a possibility to me. Like, I didn't even know people had careers as it. So, it was more just like a hobby. By the time I got to college, I had a video camera I would carry around a little bit. But it was just like, I was all about just, like, hanging out with my friends, kicking it, taking pictures of me and my friends, whatever girls we knew, making videos. Mm -hmm. And that was it. It was not. You better not have any of those (laughs) videos, pictures, all that stuff, okay? I think I destroyed (laughs) a lot of that stuff. But I was the guy in the crew that was going to have a camera to take the pictures. Got it. But it wasn't this thing. Oh, shit. I am remembering. So... My sophomore year, we started this organization before we pledged. This is my first photo shoot. And we had to make a flyer for a party that we wanted to throw to raise money. I called like these three girls that were like pseudo models in college. And I was like, yo, let me shoot y'all for this flyer. So I had my little point and shoot Sony, did these terrible photos. Like, I can't even. <laughs> And then I needed to design a flyer with the photos. I didn't know what I was doing. I took PowerPoint, put together a flyer. We got these things printed out. We got kicked off of campus, and the girls almost got suspended because of the picture. Oh, my gosh. Eric, (laughs) let me find out. You're ruining people's lives, okay? That was my first delve into a photo shoot. It did not go very well. Okay. So what was your major at Clark? It was finance. Finance. Okay. So when you graduated... Did you move straight into a finance background for that career, or what was your trajectory like? I moved straight into corporate. It wasn't necessarily finance. I ended up in this rotation program at this company, Stanley Tools. Mm-hmm. And in essence, I lasted two rotations, and then they pulled me off and made me a product manager. Mm-hmm. So I was helping design, not design, but I was taking toolboxes from the design stage all the way to when they're in the stores. Okay. And I did that for four and a half years. And it was great. Like, I learned a ton, got exposed to 
so much, had a lot of autonomy at a young age, and it gave me a lot of responsibility. And I met a ton of amazing people that have become lifelong mentors to me. Yeah. So So what are some of the things that you learned from corporate that you took with you when you became an entrepreneur? It was a gentleman by the name of Miguel Nastal. And he actually, you know, has become one of my big supporters. I did a talk at the Apple store in New York and he showed up and heard me speak. He told me once, like we were working on this project putting together a planogram. And a planogram is basically how in an actual store, where you go to a store, you see how everything is laid out. Like someone in some office somewhere is figuring out where to put the Cheerios next to the Wheaties or whatever. Like they're figuring out how a store should be laid out Mm -hmm. in an aisle. So I had to do this for this hardware project. And we had way too many SKUs or what I thought was way too many to fit in the space that I wanted to go in. And Miguel comes up to me, he's like, Eric, for every problem, a solution will present itself. And I was like, because I was like super frustrated. I'm like, this shit isn't going to fit. I don't know why I'm working on this. Like, this makes no sense. We just need to kill this. And like killing a skew could be, you're killing a million dollars. And no one wants to do that. And so he said that to me. And I sat there for probably another two, three hours, probably even slept on it and woke up the next morning. I had to answer and figured it all out. And then from that point forward in life in general, like anytime I'm faced with a problem, I know that the solution will eventually present itself. Like you just got to look for it mm-hmm. and not get frustrated. So that was one of the biggest lessons. And another one was this guy named Tim Norton. And he told me, he was like, Eric, you work hard. He was like, this is what you need to realize. He said, a lot of people do not work hard. And in order to separate yourself from everyone else, all you got to do is work a little bit harder and you're going to stand out so much more. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, I thought, well, shit, if I work a whole lot harder, I'm going to stand out even more. And I realized that like, I met a ton of people in my life. I'm very fortunate to have. And I realized, you know, a lot of people are afraid of working hard. And all you really have to do is push yourself to work a little bit harder And you're going to stand out so much more than everybody else. So I feel like a lot of people that are successful, that are entrepreneurs, talk about like hard work, right? And people that are in my position, like in corporate, yeah, we can stay an extra hour or two, and that may be hard work. But what does that really mean for an entrepreneur? What does hard work look like? I think it's the same. So in my mind, like hard work was never like an extra hour or two. Like in my mind, hard work... When I worked in corporate, I was 24 Mm 7. I would get to work at 7 a.m., I would leave at 10 p.m., and then I would have my laptop in my, like, this is before we had real smartphones. My laptop would sit next to my bed. I hear that thing ping, I'm up answering emails Mm -hmm. 24 7. They sent me to China. It's a 12 hour time difference. I'm working the 12 hour China time, and then I'm working. 10 hours U.S. time, and I'm sleeping for an hour and a half and then showering and shitting. That was the work ethic I had in corporate. Mm-hmm. And so, and a lot of it had to do with, like, we had these tremendous deadlines and we had all this pressure on us, but I liked it. Like, right. I was obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. And I could see where my work translated into dollars in terms of like what we were achieving as a company. Mm-hmm. I could see where my work translated into like 
physical things out in the real world. And I was like, this is cool. Like, <laughs> I did. Like, no, I mean, I could literally walk into a Walmart or a Home Depot or a Target and be like, yo, I did that. I can still walk into these stores right. today and see stuff that I was the one that pushed and created. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is still kind of cool. Like, right. so when I became an entrepreneur, the hard work was shit. I don't know anything about being a photographer or being in this creative world, really. I got to figure this out on my own, but obviously through people. So I got to meet as many people as I can in this field. I've got to shoot as much as I can to build a portfolio. And I've got to learn as much as I can about how to work lights, how to make a website, how to make a promo, like all these things. Like I knew nothing. So I would always ask questions. Mm-hmm. Somebody tell me a little bit. I'm like, all right, I take just a little tidbit that they give me and try to run with it. Like <laughs> <laughs> all the time. And I still do that to this day. Like even with this podcast, like I didn't know what I was doing. Somebody told me to buy a Yeti mic. So I was like, cool, I'm going to buy this mic and I'm going to run with it. <laughs> Okay, wait. So before we move forward, I want to go back a little bit. So you have this corporate job. Where did you say you worked? I first worked at Stanley Tools, and then I ended up at this company, HD Supply. Okay, so you're at HD Supply. You're living life. You have all this autonomy. You're running your projects from start to finish. You're seeing it all the way to it gets to Walmart, and you're feeling great about it. Even just hearing you talk about it now, today, it seems like it was a great job. Why did you ever decide to leave that? So Stanley was great. I had a lot of fun there and I learned a ton. And the environment we worked in was like, it was just, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. But then my industry was very tied to the housing market. I switched my boss at the time, John left, went to a different company. I eventually followed him over there to HD Supply. And by the time I moved over, the economy had shifted. The culture at HD Supply was very different than where I came from at Stanley. And the market crashed, you know, in 2009. So I started seeing people that worked for 20 years at a company get let go. And it just changed my perception of what I was doing and why I was doing it. To think like, there's no loyalty. And I don't want to be these these people that I see getting let go 20, 30 years from now. Right. So I need to, to find something else. And with the culture being so different at the company, I wasn't having as much fun anymore. And it was just constantly getting beat on by, our. at the time, my customer was Home Depot. And I'm constantly in these intense negotiations because we were dealing with inflation and we're trying to pass on price increases. It was just not a fun time. So I started looking for other outlets. And I met a group of people doing all this dope-ass creative work that were my friends. And I was like, fuck, they're enjoying their lives and I'm miserable. I got to figure something out. <laughs> right. Like, really? Like, I would go see them and they would be like, Eric, it's... um." I'm like, man, it's Tuesday. What are y'all doing? They're like, we don't know what day of the week it is. Every day's mm-hmm. the same to us. I'm like, well, fuck, tomorrow's Wednesday for me. I can't wait till Friday. Right, right. And once, that sounds familiar. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but once you start really living for like the two and a half days that you get off or the day and a half, it's like, oh, this is miserable. Right. And I just knew I had to, to do something different. And I photography found me again mm-hmm. through Facebook. And I don't know, it just took a hold of me. 
Okay, wait. So how did photography find you through Facebook? That sounds interesting. I was on Facebook and Monica Lindsay, your profile, made a post about who wants to take photography classes. And I was like, me. Did you feel like it was a sign from God? (laughs) I just, it was weird because I had always wanted to get back into it at the same degree I was into it as a child. Like it had always been the same in the back of my head. And I almost took a class at Clark. Mm-hmm. But I decided not to because you had to buy a camera and the, the class was like off campus and I was lazy. And I wasn't going to walk off campus. I wasn't going to buy the camera. Mm-hmm. So when Monica made the post, I was like, this is perfect. Right. And I still didn't know people had careers out of it. Mm-hmm. But it was just like, cool, I get to do this thing that I want to do. And I've always wanted to get back into. So I bought the camera, took the class and through the class, I started to love it more. I started telling people about it. And then through that led me to meeting people that actually made a living out of it. And I was saw I was like, well, if he can make a living out of it, right. I can make a living out of it. Right. I always tell you about this story. You will remember this one day. I swear <laughs> to God, you told me I was 27 years old. You was 28. You told me that you were going to quit your job. You're going to save as much money as you could and that you were going to be a photographer. I had to be 27. You had to be 26 because well, I quit better. my job. When I was 28. Okay. I literally remember that, though. I thought it was super dope that you thought you were going to do that. And I thought it was even doper when you did it. So, But I know for me, when I decide that I'm going to do something, like in my mind, then I start telling everybody. You're relentless about something that you want to do. <laughs> yeah. And then I just tell everybody because I need them to hold me accountable. Mm-hmm. And I like to play this little mind game with myself where I think like if I tell enough people, then it's no turning back from this either. Right. Okay. So backing up a little bit. So I want to get really real because I think there are many people that either want to quit their job or they have thoughts about quitting their job. So you had this epiphany that you wanted to quit your job. You knew what you wanted to do. How much money or what did you feel comfortable with in order to make this decision to say, I'm going to completely switch careers. I'm going to take a chance. This is what I need to do to make sure that I'll be okay taking this leap of faith. So for me, that's interesting because, like I said, I had this group of creative people that I would hang out with on my weekends and in my evenings. And they all had either quit their job or got laid off to pursue something creative. And they kind of showed me, like, were very transparent in their struggles financially and how it impacted them. So I made the decision that when I do make this leap, I want to be financially secure that when I go through the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur, of being a creative, I want to try and be no broke-ass artist. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't want my lifestyle to change that much, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be able to create. So I decided the number for me was going to be $100,000. I was like, I'll be able to figure it out, and if I all those fails, I can go back to corporate Mm -hmm. and start again. So it took me... It was very fortunate in what I did. It took me six months to save up for this transition I was going to make. But I was like very strategic about it. So I got rid of a car, got a decent check back for getting rid of the car. I had um, negotiated a salary raise at my company, got my bonus structure changed. And I knew once the bonus got paid out with the raise, I got a roommate at my place. All those things, I'd be able to hit my number Got and it. feel good. So everything was about cutting expenses to prepare for this transition. Yeah, it was definitely about cutting expenses. 
It was about cutting expenses and it was about kind of just getting rid of the unnecessary things. Like I was wasteful Mm -hmm. with money and I needed to get to a place where, you know, it's only a few things that really matter. And that's where I, I focus on the things that matter. Right, right. Okay, so now you have money in the bank. You've made a decision to quit. Walk us through how you got your first non-paying job, your first paying job, whichever came first. How did you secure that gig? So before I quit, I met this photographer named Elton Anderson. And he had become like, a he's a really good friend of mine now. And he had become like a really good guide in this transition. He was part of that creative circle. And he was shooting weddings at the time. So he was like, just come with me, second shoot some weddings with me. So I did that. Hold on, what does second shoot mean? So Elton would get hired as a photographer, but the couple that hires you would say, I want a second photographer. Okay. And so he would just bring me on and be the second shooter for the weddings. And so this was just for me learning. And then sometimes Elton would have a crew. It would be like five photographers at one person wedding Mm -hmm. because everybody just wanted to learn from him. And... I got that experience and I would get some dope images. So I was like, all right, when I quit my job, I'm going to shoot weddings to just make a little bit of money on the side. Even though that was never the goal was not to be a wedding photographer. Like I knew I wanted to be a commercial photographer, Mm -hmm. but I knew I needed to make money in reality of the situation. So my first few weddings were like friends, Mm -hmm. people I know. Everybody was getting married when I was 27 when I quit. So, or 28, and I got to shoot their weddings, and it was like these big parties I get to go to, and I'm the photographer, and we're having fun, and I'm getting drunk, and it's just a good time. Mm-hmm. But I got some really dope weddings. Like My first one was in the DR, and that was literally a week after I quit my job. And then a month later, I shot my boy Tori's wedding in L.A., and he had this over-the-top beautiful wedding, and his pictures went like viral, and I got them featured on a bunch of places. And then from that, I started booking more weddings. But also the thing that I've always done is like I try to figure out, all right, who is the decision maker in hiring a photographer? Mm -hmm. So with weddings, for me, what I realized is that the decision maker typically is the wedding planner. And so I was like, I'm going to start marketing to wedding planners versus trying to figure out how to figure out who's getting married, brides and stuff. I'm like, if the wedding planner suggests to a couple to use this photographer, that's the photographer they're going to use right. 90% of the time. Right. And so I found like four wedding planners that like became my cheerleaders. Yeah. And they would refer almost all their weddings to me. And so that's how I started shooting weddings. My first year, I shot like five weddings. The next year, I shot like 26. Wow. Just in the course of one year, five it was to 26. In, it was in so intense, and it made me realize, you know, the first year, the first five were all my friends. Right. It was great. The next year, probably six people were my friends. The other 20, I didn't know who these people were. Mm-hmm. And so it was never really that fun. And then what happened, people book weddings so far in advance that they book them like a year, eight months in advance. I wanted to be a commercial photographer. Mm-hmm. I got booked on a wedding and I got hit up for commercial jobs. You get booked maybe a week, maybe a month in advance. It's like long lead time. 
But a lot of times I get booked a week, two weeks in advance. And I got hit up for a commercial job that I really wanted to do. And I couldn't do it because I had a wedding booked on the date that the commercial job was going to happen. And after that, I decided that I'm never going to shoot a wedding again. What? Yeah, so I, and I was making good money shooting weddings. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Maybe this wasn't my first. So I quit my job in May of 2008, I think. 2009, I shot five weddings. 2010, I shot 26. Mm-hmm. Like, it literally was a weekend where I shot a wedding on a Friday in Atlanta, a Saturday in Tallahassee, and a Sunday in L.A. Mm-hmm. And I was like... This is intense. And me and Elton were actually doing them together. He second shot the wedding for me in Atlanta. I second shot the wedding for him in Tallahassee. Then we had to drive. Like, we were driving through the middle of the night, getting on a flight. It was just way too much. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, (laughs) I'm working myself crazy, which I didn't mind. Like, the work never bothered me. But I'm working myself crazy doing something that I'm really not even passionate about anymore at all. It felt like being in corporate again. Yeah. I'm like, I didn't quit my job right. to go do something else that I don't love. Mm-hmm. And I'm making great money at this. Like, my last wedding, I charged a couple $12,000 to take some wedding pictures. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm about to walk away from this. And it was easy because, again, the hardest decision I ever made was walking away from my, my corporate job. So I was like, I'll figure it out. And I decided I'm never going to shoot a wedding again. So after that year... I got guilty into shooting one more wedding. But outside of that, I never <laughs> I shot a wedding I saw you at again. that wedding. <laughs> you did. <laughs> okay, boom. So you made a decision. You're no longer shooting weddings. Eric is now going to be a commercial photographer. What does that actually mean, commercial photographer? That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, going to need you to know the definition I of what you do, babe. <laughs> a commercial photographer is you're shooting ads for different brands. Mm-hmm. So you have commercial photographers, you have editorial photographers. So editorial photographers are shooting for magazines, but they all kind of mix and mingle. Like you can get commercial jobs through the editorial world, but you know, you're getting hired to shoot higher, I don't even want to say higher end, just a different type of work. Okay. So you're making a decision to be a commercial photographer. Walk us through that process from you saying, nope, not doing any more weddings to when you got your first gig. How long did that take? So I guess I need to rewind a little bit. When I decided to leave my job, I wanted to be a commercial photographer. So though I was shooting weddings, anything I shot personally was always in the vein to push me towards commercial work. So I used to shoot all the time, like a bunch of free stuff, a bunch of models, a bunch of just people I thought that were interesting, trying to figure out what I wanted to shoot. But pushing myself towards the commercial world. So through that, I've booked a job here or a job there. Mm -hmm. So I'd done a job for AT&T. I did a job for Gillette. I'd done a hair campaign. I'd done like little jobs. I'd done a job for BET, shooting behind the scenes for this big campaign they were doing. Mm -hmm. I'd done a couple of music video behind the scenes and promo images. So I had dipped my toe in it, but I wasn't all the way in because weddings was where I was all in. Right. They were taking up your time. They were taking up my time and my resources, but the commercial world was where I really wanted to be. Right. In that same path, like I was trying to do both. At the same time. So I was going to New York once a month for four years, five years. It was intense. Like every month I was like, I'm going to New York. I'm going to try to set up meetings, try to show my work. 
And I would get to New York. I have like no meetings the first mm-hmm. couple of days. or like one because it was like my boy and he would like guilt somebody into meeting me. <laughs> <laughs> like real talk. <laughs> like, okay, so wait. So wait, before you go further into like the whole New York thing, I think for people that, again, are trying to break into the industry or that are trying to be creative, that you're really trying to provide line of sight to. Who are the people that you were trying to get FaceTime with in New York? What were the avenues that you were using to get a hold of these people to try to get interviews with them? Just kind of walk us through what that process looks like. So, I mean, to be honest, when I first started, I didn't even know who I need to get a hold of. <laughs> like, I didn't. Like, again, I did not come from this world. I didn't understand it. I just knew I had a boy that worked at an ad agency. Right. I didn't even know what he really did for work. I knew he, like, did a couple photo shoots, had some clients. But I didn't know what he did. He got free liquor, and they had a bar at that office. Okay. So, right. <laughs> I literally called him up. I'm like, yo, I'm I'm a photographer. <laughs> but even being able to say that I was a photographer was a challenge for me. Right. Because I would tell people, like, yeah, I'm a photographer. But then I would always lean back and be like, but, you know, I used to work in corporate and this was my thing. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to really own what I was or what I was becoming. And I don't think it was really till I owned it that I could confidently go into meetings and be like, this is my work. This is who I am. This is what I represent. And, that, and I'm not going to say that was like a quick thing. That was like, I was probably four years, five years into it yeah. before I could own it. Mm-hmm. And I had done jobs and mm-hmm. shit, but I didn't own it. So going back, I had my friend in New York. I'm like, set me up with meetings, whoever you can. He hooked me up with a producer. I didn't know what a producer was or what they did. It took me probably a year to figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) But she told me, she was like, just shoot a lot. She got me. She was the one that convinced me to move to L.A. Her name's Callie Cavadisi. And after that, I kept reaching out to her seeing who else she could introduce me to. I would reach out to Dane, see who he can introduce me to. And again, like I said, I did this BET job. I got referred to them to do behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But then maybe a year later, they randomly hit me up to shoot a promo for an award show. And Anthony Anderson was hosting it. Mm-hmm. And they weren't going to pay me nearly as much as I got paid for that for the commercial job. And I turned them down. And I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. Then I didn't work for a year. <laughs> Mm. Or I did like one job that year. And I was like, what am I doing? I'm an idiot. And But on the behind the scenes job, I became really close with the guy that ran the whole creative department. So I went through my emails a year later, found his email. And I remembered a lesson I learned in corporate where somebody emailed our CEO about a $70 toolbox and it was broken. And we're a $3 billion company. It was like the world was set on fire because our CEO got this email about this $70 toolbox. And I was like, well, he probably can't meet with me. But if I email him, he probably don't get a lot of emails. He'll send it down to his people and they will feel like the world is set on fire. <laughs> and somebody will meet with me. Because I have been trying to like get meetings with them on my trips to New York and I would hear crickets. Mm-hmm. And I emailed him. He told me he couldn't meet with me, but he sent it to his people. And literally, the next time I was in New York, I was at the Starbucks across from their office meeting with his people. Nice. And a month later, I was doing my first job for them. So there are two things I kind of want to go back to. The first, you said 
You would set up these reoccurring meetings. Well, actually, you were trying to get meetings, but you would continuously go to New York every month, right? For a whole week, would you say there? I would be there, yeah, probably a week. Okay. So what did it look like? Like, you on the grind, you in New York, you trying to get these meetings. I know you were leveraging Dane and Callie, but what were some of the other resources who were you reaching out to? Who were you trying to meet with? What levels of people were these? So once I kind of figured out who I needed to meet with, whether it was a producer, it was mainly producers or creative directors. Then I started figuring out the brands I wanted to work with, and I would figure out the advertising agencies that those brands were with, and then where I felt like I was a good fit. So I would reach out to the people at the ad agencies, and I would find their email addresses either through websites like LinkedIn is my biggest resource I use now. But back in the day, it used to be, God, I can't even remember the name of the site. I used some other site to find Mm -hmm. people's info. And I would reach out to them be like, I'm in New York for the week. I would love to meet with you. And so at first it started, I wouldn't have nobody. And then eventually it got to a point where I'm in like back-to-back meetings, running all around the city like a chicken with his head cut off. Right. On the train, like starting off means... Most people in New York don't get to work till 10. So I'd be in their office at like 1030 and I would be in meetings until 530. I'll still do it to this day where I start my meetings at 1030. I'm there till 530 and then I'm entertaining people till 11, 12 o'clock at night. And I'm starting all over the next day. And I've done things where I like bomb into New York, go to the gym and shower, leave my luggage there, meet all day. And then pick up my luggage at the end of the night. Yeah. And then find my way back to the airport. Wow. So that sounds intense. It to me is fun. Like yeah. I like it. I enjoy it. And it's it's crazy because like I'll meet with people and I'll follow up with them. And I realize like work, I may never get hired by these people. Or if I'm gonna get hired from the day I meet with them, it could be two years before they actually hire me for a job. And none of it bothers me, though. Like, I enjoy all of it because I love the interaction with the people. I love learning from them. I love that aspect of the business. Like, I mean, my old job in corporate was a lot account management. Mm -hmm. So this feels a lot like that. And that was the best part of what I did when I was in corporate. Yeah. So that's the best part. It's not the best part, but it's one of the fun parts of what I do now. Cool. Well, it's something I still want to go back to, but before I go back there, I just want you to talk a little bit about the relationships and the importance of relationships that you've developed and their impact on your career. Oh, relationships are everything. I know my career would not be where it is if not for all the relationships that I've made throughout. It's an interesting thing because I interned for this photographer, Derek Blanks, in Atlanta, and he was actually the guy that introduced me to my biggest client now, BET. He was shooting for them and they needed a behind the scenes photographer. And he was like, yo, you should use my guy, Eric. And me and him are still close to this day. And so with BET, they're like family. Like I go in their office, I feel like I should have my own little cubicle there and be on benefits. <laughs> okay, now. <laughs> like we joke about it though. Like I know almost everyone in that creative service department. And we just have a good time. Like, it's it's like friends. Like, mm-hmm. when you work on set, it's like friends. Like, same with Callie. Like, I met her when I first got into this. And she's like this young kid that's a young producer telling me to move to L.A. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to pack up all my shit from Atlanta and move yeah. to L.A. And listen. And she's like family to me. Like, all my clients, 
that I've been able to work for over and over again, they become friends and we get to create these dope work on these dope projects and have these great experiences, good and bad experiences. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter if it's good or bad as long as you're doing with people that you care about and you like. And I don't know. It's it's something to be said. I love that. I think one thing that's pretty cool that I know about you is just the level of mentors that you keep around you. So you didn't talk about that in the relationship aspect, but speak to your mentors a little bit. And <laughs> I, So I have a lot of people that I'm fortunate to call mentors. It's interesting because I think the fact that my father died when I was young has always pushed me in a direction of looking for guidance from people. So just my whole life that I remember from college on, I've always identified people and looked to them as built relationships with them, like real relationships, and they become mentors to me. So like now, a lot of the the people I've interviewed for this podcast are mentors to me. And Mm -hmm. it's weird. Like I think for someone to be willing to pour into you, they have to see something in you. And they gotta believe in you, and then you gotta you gotta be willing to give to them too. Like it can't be you just take take take. So right. that's what I I try to do is like I try to give as much as I can, and I receive so much more back from my mentors. Yeah. So are your mentors photographers that have been in the industry for a while? Like what type of positions think. and what is their career paths? What are their career paths that inspired you to say? I admire where you are. Take me under your wing. So they're not all photographers. I would say now is less and less photographers. It's it's directors, producers. It's has a creative departments, and they're not even all creatives. Like some of my mentors are in corporate, so they are successful. Mm-hmm. All of them. They are all pretty alpha personalities, and. They're all driven. And so I see in them, it's almost like looking at a reflection. Like I see in them where I foresee myself. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I think I identify my mentors. That's cool. That's dope. Has anybody ever turned you down? Like, I don't think I never asked anyone to be my, I don't be like, yo, can you be my mentor? You want to be my mentor? It's (laughs) just like, it's like this natural progression in a relationship. Okay. Okay. So backtracking quite a bit, um, you said something that stood out that I think a lot of people may find very interesting. So you talked about the fact that you had one job in the course of one year at a time when you were working. When you were already out on your own, you were an entrepreneur, you only secured one job for that year. What did that look like? What type of spirits were you in? Um, Down in the dumps. (laughs) (laughs) I was depressed. And so it's crazy. So I I learned a lot through that. And in addition to learning a lot, I had the right people in my life at the right time. So, and I always believe God has always put the right people in my life at the right time. So basically what happened is I do this huge job for Gillette, get paid a ton of money, which helped sustain me through that rough year. But then I was entitled and I thought every job had to be at this level. And if it wasn't, 
then I wasn't, it wasn't worth my time and I thought I had arrived. None of that was true. This was just like one small brick and a very big building I'm trying to build. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that at the time. I thought every brick was going to be the size of that brick and that's not the case. And then I think part of it was like ignorance of the industry and then part of it, a lot of it more was arrogance. So I go through this year and it's really dark for me and I'm questioning whether I should quit I'm just questioning everything and I'm depressed. And Elton said to me, he was like, the problem is you're entitled. Like you've turned down jobs. You think people owe you something and all this other stuff. He's like, you should be thankful that people actually want to hire you to take pictures. Like you should be thankful for that. And he said to me, he was like, he used to take jobs where he was making $250 shooting somebody's liquor at a party. And he didn't even own a camera at the time. Like, he was using my camera. And he was like, I don't understand why you feel like you should be shooting all this, these massive campaigns. And I was like, good point. So I took a step back. And then he said to me, like, how many jobs have you done this year? This is probably like October of whatever year that was. And I was like, shit, I only did one job. <laughs> he was like, exactly. And I was like, you make a good point. And so after that, I literally started saying yes to everything. It didn't matter. I shot this dude's engagement at some restaurant here in LA for like $50. (laughs) Anybody hit me up that wanted me to take a picture, I just started saying yes. And it was really to get me out of the funk and to just get me back into this rhythm of shooting and creating and realizing that what I'm able to do is a blessing and I should be thankful and I'm very fortunate to be able to do this. Yeah. And it put me in this place of like just immense gratitude. And so I shot a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of randomness. And then I was like, okay, let me let me taper this in and get back to my focus of what mm-hmm. I really want to do. Mm-hmm. And then I did that. And then doors started opening. I mean, doors started opening, but I was still knocking on doors too yeah. to get them to open. But as I knocked, like they would open and better opportunities came. Got it. So you've had very low lows, it seems like, and very high highs. One of the things that I think is so interesting about entrepreneurship are just the peaks and the valleys, right? I've heard a story before that you actually went and applied for a job in one of those valleys because times got hard and you really just didn't know if this was for you. Talk a little bit more about that. So I was living in Culver City on Madison Avenue And it's literally where I live was three blocks from Sony's headquarters. And I was going through a low where I was not working. My money was getting funny and I just didn't know what to do. So I prayed about it and I applied for this job at Sony. I don't think, not a lot of people know this either. <laughs> to be honest, like I kept that little secret for a long time. Like I told people I've been through loans, but that, not that I applied for a job. <laughs> and so I applied for this job and um, I was way overqualified for the job. But I was like, I do this job. I kill it. If I got to start over in corporate, take this little dumb job kill it, get promoted in six months, get back to where I was when I was in corporate in a year and a half in my mind. And I was like, I know I'm going to get the job. They're going to call me probably tomorrow. But I didn't really, like, in my heart, I was like, fuck, I don't want to be a failure. I was like, if I got to start over, at least it's in Cali. Don't nobody know me out here. (laughs) 
<laughs> said, ain't none of this going on on social media. I'm going to disappear. <laughs> and so I applied, but then I also prayed. I was like, God, do you really want me to take a job? Like, do you want me to go back to corporate? Because I don't think this is why I moved out here. I don't think this is why I quit my job, started over, you know, been through the stuff that I'd already been through. It being a creative um, for you to make me just go back a couple years later. And I said, God, here's the deal. If you want me to go back to corporate, I'm going to get this job. And if you don't, you're going to send me a job where I'm taking pictures. And literally, I never heard from Sony, which I'm still kind of shocked about. Like, I feel like I should have got a call right away. But they never called me. And I want to say it was like a couple days later was when I booked one of my biggest jobs to this date. It was a job that messed me up and gave me a lot of arrogance. But I still booked it, and it let me know, shooting for Gillette, that this is where I'm supposed to be. And ever since then, I've never questioned if I'm supposed to be doing this or not. Yeah. 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 That's, that's deep, babe. <laughs> it, was, it was a deep time. Like, it's, like, being an entrepreneur, you learn a lot about yourself. Mm-hmm. You get tested a ton mentally. You build this callus in your mind that no matter what challenges you face, no matter what obstacles you're going to hit, you're going to get through them. And I used to say to myself, I look at things, challenges is like these walls. And the wall may not have a door in it, but I don't give a fuck. I'm going to knock this wall down no matter what it takes. You're so aggressive. I swear. Okay, so um, I want to pivot a little bit now because I think we talked a lot about the lows, right? So mm-hmm. now I want to start talking about some of the successes that you've had in your life, some of the things that you may have even been shocked by, right? And I love it now because you've been knocked down so low that that humility is low, right? So now when you have these successes, I'm assuming that you're taking it and internalizing it a little bit different, right? Than how you would have before. Okay, so who are some of the people or some of the experiences that you've had that you were literally just like, my God, how was I selected to do this? So it's crazy. The time that comes to my mind, I didn't even take a photo, but I'm just like, how is this happening right now? And the fact that I'm in this space is just incredible. So I was hired to shoot Kelly, Roland, Michelle Williams, and Beyonce. And that was an amazing experience in Vegas. But while I was on that assignment, I'm in a room with Jay-Z and their daughter and the creative director from Beyonce's team. And he's talking about the launch of title before it even launched. And I'm just sitting there like, this is crazy. <laughs> Cause like Jay-Z is like, and I had my camera and everything. I didn't even try to take a picture of him. <laughs> and I'm just like, this is crazy. Like I'm sitting here with four people talking. I wasn't really talking. I think I said, what's up? Maybe she could say. <laughs> but I'm listening to Jay-Z, like, talk to me. I'm like, how did this happen? Like, I used to make toolboxes. Right. <laughs> and now I'm in a room with Jay-Z and he's telling me about title. I thought he was about to give me a free membership. <laughs> so that was definitely like a moment where I was like, wow, mm-hmm. this is... This is it. And then, I don't know, like I've been able to shoot 
a lot of really dope people and just experienced just things that I would have never thought possible. I'm a big sports fan, and I got to take a picture of LeBron James, and I was like, I saw him. I was like, wait, that's LeBron? <laughs> <laughs> and we were in like this, the same, I don't know. It's just crazy. It's crazy. But the more rewarding thing is like hearing people's stories, though, like what they've been through to get to where they are. And and that becomes like a motivation for me to be like, all right, Eric, you think you work hard, but you ain't working hard enough. Right. So those are the moments. Like I got to hear Taraji's story and how she moved to LA with, I think, $100 and a baby. And now she went at Oscars and has one of the hottest shows on Fox. Right. But 20 years ago, that wasn't her story. Yeah. And it took her all this time and just realizing, you know, no matter what, anything worth building is going to take time. It's going to take a lot of effort. And you can't get caught up in this short-term fix or high on fame or on short-term success. Like, it's not sustainable. Like, you got to be willing to take every job and look at it as like, all right, this is one one brick and this is the building that I'm building, no matter what it is. Because it's never going to be one picture I take that's going to be like, that's the picture that set me over the top. It may be when I take that picture, it may be more recognized, but it was all those bricks below that picture that even got me to the point to be able to take that picture. Right, right. So. I love that. You so dope, babe. <laughs> Okay, so you talked about like people's stories inspiring you. What are some of the other things that are inspirational that you pull from when you're shooting, when you're being creative um, to help kind of give you your creativity? Like, I'm obsessed with photography. Like, it's kind of bad. So I'm always looking at photos. And it doesn't have to be like no big time amazing photography. It could be somebody's iPhone picture. Mm-hmm. So I'm just obsessed. And I'm looking at... Now, when I look at movies in a totally different way, I'm like, that lighting and like how they shot it and the angles. And I'm like, the cinematography is like, and the coloring of it, all of that just like makes me feel all good inside. <laughs> like, I, like, I, I wish get you excited. guys could see the little dance he just did to describe how he feels. So, things like that inspire me. Being a photographer is super isolating. Mm-hmm. Like, super, I'm always by myself. And I used to have a studio. And I ended up getting rid of it because it was just too isolating for me. I need to be around people. Mm-hmm. So now I try to get out more and, and interact with people more and see people more. And mm-hmm. just the vibes, the energy is like, it's just inspiring. Like people, yeah. everybody's different. So where do you go today for that? Where do you go to work and to get inspired and see people all the time? So I'll do different things like. I'll go, I go to this clubhouse in LA and I see people there and it gives me a vibe where it's a bunch of creatives and we're all there working and I'm around other people and that's great. Mm -hmm. But then I'll find like these interesting little pockets in LA. I used to do a lot more of it where I found like this community of all these like fixed gear bikers Mm -hmm. and I hung out with them for a while and we were riding. I didn't have a fixed gear. I had like a a regular road bike. I ride around and hang out with them and I was like, these people are cool. Then I found like this group (laughs) of like painters and they had like this massive warehouse in LA and they would all just be in there painting like Da Vinci Code shit. (laughs) And I was like, this shit is so interesting (laughs) and cool. 
And so I try to like stay as connected as I can to just all these different subcultures and in LA and just try to dip my toe in them because each one of them I pull something from. Yeah. That's cool, but <laughs> I love that. Okay, so I think many people see your output, right? We see your images, we see social media or your website, and we don't understand necessarily everything that it takes for you to get those images, right? So kind of walk us through a day in the life of Eric getting hired to do this job, everything that you almost have to do to set it up, to get it ready all the way through when the client says, yes, this is the image. So, yes, my social media is definitely my highlight reel. <laughs> <laughs> but on a day-to-day, like, from the time I get awarded a job. So, to get to the point to get awarded a job is just been years of building relationships with clients. So, I've been fortunate to have a, a few clients that call me over and over again. And they're on a pretty consistent basis producing content. And they they trust me to to capture photography for them. But when they do call me, they'll send me over a creative that they kind of outline what they're looking for, what they're trying to achieve. And then I got to crew up for it. And so it's been an interesting transition. When I first started getting hired, I would have like interns only, like just my friends. It'd be me and Elton out there (laughs) trying to figure it out. And maybe one other person. And then... I don't even know how this happened. Like, I barely knew what I was doing. I was getting hired for these jobs. Elton barely knew what he was doing, but we was just like muscling through it and figuring it out on our own. And then through that, but we started meeting more photographers and they would just put us on game because they would say, no, you got to hire this guy. You get your equipment from here. And then where you get your equipment from, they'll have a list of people you can hire. I was like, Really? This is amazing. (laughs) And so I started finding the right people to hire. And I got like a really solid crew now where if I'm in in L.A., I got an incredible crew. I got a crew in Atlanta. I got a crew in New York. And then if I'm going to any other city, if I can't fly my crew from L.A. out, I know I can reach out to either photographers I know that worked in that city or to the equipment house I'm going to rent from. And they're going to give me a solid crew to work with. I'm going to tell them exactly what I need the type of people I want to work with, and I'll be able to get that. So it goes from, here's a creative. These are the specs that they're looking for. All right, let me get my crew. The crew's going to tell me what equipment we need because I'm going to send them the creative. Mm -hmm. And then everyone comes together. And then when we get on set, my crew does the building of the set and everything. I spend time with the client, talking through the creative some more. And typically... I like to have an hour with my talent, but a lot of times, you know, my first time shooting Taraji, I had 45 seconds to shoot her. Oh, wow. Maybe. Maybe. And then I've shot other people where I was supposed to get an hour and I got 20 minutes, 10 minutes. Is that like so much pressure? You have to get everything right in 45 seconds or 20 minutes? I mean, to be honest... I grew up in Baltimore City. Like, I've had a lot of things happen that were a lot more pressure in my life. Yeah. Like, I'm taking pictures for a living. This shit is fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know some people get, like, a lot of pressure. And to me, I'm like, we taking pictures. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to get the talent warmed up. I'm going to have fun with them. Hopefully, we can have some vibes, music playing. If not, I'm going to be loud enough. <laughs> I'm going to bring enough energy to the table, and we're going to make this happen. Right. So... I've had times where I get 
12 hours with somebody. And then I've had times where I get three minutes with somebody. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm like really cool with either one because it's going to be what it's going to be in the time that we have. And I'm going to bring as much energy to the table as I possibly can. Yeah. And typically when you bring good, positive energy, it gets reciprocated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes people, you know, people go through things in life and they bring that. Sometimes that gets brought to set too. Yeah, for sure. But you just work through it. You work through it. Yeah. And I've been really fortunate to have a lot of amazing people that I've been able to work with and shoot that bring great energy. Right, right. Okay, so one thing that I want to transition to, so we talked a lot about your paying gigs, right? So the clients, the relationships that you've built when they're calling you to say, hey, Eric, come and shoot this for us. But I know that you spend a lot of time and thought and energy towards your personal projects as well. So talk a little bit about your lane and what you try to kind of create from a personal perspective and how different that is from some of your other work. So it's evolved a lot. Originally, when I first got into photography, when I was shooting personal work, I would always shoot work that I thought the client would want to see to hire me. And it was always, the work always fell flat. I mean, it was good enough. Like, I got a few gigs here and there. And then eventually I started getting more. But it still, to me, fell flat. And most of that work, you know, I wouldn't even, it's on some hard drive somewhere lost, hopefully. But now, after years of doing this, like, my personal work has to really resonate with me. And I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what are the things that truly resonate with me? What are the things that matter to me and what are the type of images I'm trying to make? And even with my project work, like my hire, work for hire, I try to um, incorporate that into it too. So for me, like now, where I'm at now in my career is I'm trying to create timeless work that fine art, something you want to hang on your wall, not just something that's going to be an advertisement for the next TV show. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. And it, and work that like strikes an emotional chord. There's a few projects that I'm working on um, that I'm putting together and I'm, I'm going to be moving forward pretty soon with that are really close to my heart with things that just happened in my life and have impacted me. And I want to kind of tell that story. And I think the best stories are the stories that you tell that are closest to your heart. Well, I can't wait for that work to begin. So what are some of the emotions and the things that you want people to feel when they see your creative work, really more so on the personal side? Well, I know the thing that I always want people to feel is a connection. I think the most important thing for just people and humans is like, we all want to feel some type of connection. Mm -hmm. So I want people to feel drawn in and connected to my work. From the image alone, like I, I want the image to be strong enough that you're drawn into the image to want to know more about what's happening and what's going on. Got it. Um, and then even with with my podcast, like I want people to feel connected to that from a sense of empowerment and inspiration and a roadmap. I think that is amazing. I love all the work you do, clearly, but I really, really love when it seems like I can feel what you were actually trying to like actually create through the project. And I think a lot of your personal work achieves 
some of that. So just excited to see what you have <laughs> in the future. Okay, so let's wrap up. But there are a couple of things that I really want to know because I know the the purpose and the objective behind this podcast is really, like you said, to inspire people and educate. So you've been in the game now for what, seven, eight years? Seven years. Seven years. You quit seven years ago. You started your own thing seven years ago. Um, Seven years in now, what would you tell yourself if you were talking to Eric seven years ago that was just starting out in this industry? What kind of advice would you give yourself at that time? The biggest advice I would give myself is to lose your sense of entitlement as fast as possible. Like, I I think, you know, a lot of what I've experienced, I think, has been for a reason. And I feel like you go through things and you don't realize why you're going through them. But when you come out on the other end, you can look back and be like, all right, it all makes sense now. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing that, that if I changed it, it would still all make sense. But losing an entitlement would have been a great thing for me to do earlier. Yeah. 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 And then to remain even, like the highs and lows of being an entrepreneur are intense. And I mean, honestly, like sports taught me, like watching Kobe Bryant and hearing him talk, and he always remained even. Like he could score 81 points, and you would think he only had 10 or 20. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't matter to him. He remained even, like no matter, he won five chips and he was like, that's cool, but we on to the next one. Yeah. So I could shoot Obama, President Obama, and that would be great, but I'd be like, okay, that's just one more break. All right, what's next? I would freak out. I'd be like, oh my gosh, baby, you shot <laughs> President Obama. <laughs> I would be, I'd be excited a little bit, but I wouldn't let that excite, I would temper the excitement. I right. always... Because I've shot people where I'm like, damn, this is dope. Mm-hmm. But I still temper the, the excitement. Because the times that I haven't tempered that excitement, I can look back and see where I fell short mm-hmm. and where it caused issues. Because there's definitely been times where I allowed the excitement to blind me or to lead me in the wrong direction. Right. And there's also been times where I've let disappointment to slow me down, distract me, to depress me and all that. And as long as I can remain even through the lows and the highs, then that's the best path for me. Remaining even. Yeah. I love that. So speaking of the lows and the highs, (laughs) speaking of everything that you've already done in the past, if you had to kind of describe the work that you've done past, present, and future, how would you describe it? So I'm going to describe it as like a child birth, right? So the past... I would call incubation. <laughs> so I was just like building and creating and like developing, developing my arms and my legs and my eyes. In the present, I think it's like my infancy. So I can walk a little bit. I can see. I can kind of move around, but... I still got a lot more growth to go. And so the future is like just all that growth left. Yeah. Yeah. So what should we expect to see from you in the future? See a lot more images. You're going to see more podcasts. You're going to see some speaking engagements. I mean, at the end of the day, in the future, you're going to see God's plan for my life 
unfold and I'm open to whatever direction he, he tells me to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I'm so happy to be a part of watching you flourish and just achieve everything that it seems like was destined for your life. And I'm so appreciative that your mother put that camera in front of you very young because you have taken it and ran with it. I'm so appreciative for your parents, for your grandmother, for your vision. Clearly, I believe in you and I love you. And I'm just excited to see where you're going to go moving forward, babe. Thank you. I love you. And I'm appreciative for all the people you mentioned and also for my brother who makes a tremendous sacrifice for me to be able to do what I'm doing. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thanks. Goodbye. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please share it with your community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat, and write a review on iTunes. My goal is to inspire and help as many people as possible. And by you sharing, we will be able to do this together. You can also shoot me an email if you have any suggestions. Thank you for your time.